Our psalm of the day can be found in Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 12. And you'll forgive me if my voice is a bit shaky today. The Colson house has been hit by the plague, allergies, colds, and stomach bugs. And uh, so I'm two out of three right now, so we're solid. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 out of, of 1 through 31. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our, our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body 
giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we gather around your word this morning, we look to your spirit of which we have read to give us understanding. Lead us into all truth and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In the years leading up to the founding of Labrie, Francis and Judith Schaefer record in their, uh, in the book that Judith Schaefer pulled together the experience a season of self-examination. And one of the things that Francis Schaeffer concluded after that season of self-examination was that his doctrine and experience of the Holy Spirit was rather deficient. Schaeffer wrote, and he was asking the question, he says, if the Holy Spirit just simply went missing all of a sudden from my Bible, would it make any practical difference about the way I do my daily affairs? And he was concluding that up to that point in his public ministry, that it wouldn't, that he wasn't reliant upon the Spirit. There was something lacking. There was something that he was missing. And it's important for us to just go ahead and recognize it, that in the Presbyterian tradition, there is a certain reserve There is a hesitancy. There is a coyness about the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to speak of him, we tend to get more uncomfortable than when we talk about finances. That the Holy Spirit can be profoundly disturbing for us. And Schaefer was pointing to something true about our tradition. But why exactly is it? Well, honestly, there's some really bad reasons But then there's also some good reasons. You see, the Holy Spirit has always been at the center of controversy. If we go all the way back to the day of Pentecost, the day that Jesus has ascended into heaven, he then pours out gifts as the great king from on high on the church, and the apostles begin speaking in tongues, and then a controversy breaks out because the apostles were accused of being drunk. This was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was dividing people already. And then we arrive in Corinth, some 30 years later, a church the Apostle Paul has planted. And what was given to unite had actually become something that was dividing. That the Spirit was given to unite the church together as one body, a confessing community. And rather, it was being used to create hierarchies and divisions within the body that the Corinthian leaders who were guiding the church and who were misleading the church 
were taking their understanding of the Spirit and dividing up uh, the body as to around spiritual manifestations and, and gifts and certain charismatic manifestations. And so certain gifts were valued and others were discounted. Certain people were exalted while others were shamed and certain activities were deemed important while others were looked down upon and considered inconsequential. And Paul sees this as all deeply misguided. That there was a charismatic experience happening here in Corinth that actually betrayed the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit was given to unite and yet they were using it to divide. That the Holy Spirit had been weaponized in Corinth. And that weaponization did not stop there. It's continued on in the church today. And Paul has to engage it. And the topic of the Spirit is once again going to take us across three chapters. We will work through chapter 12 today and chapter 13. And finally in chapter 14 where Paul is dealing with the issues of the Holy Spirit in worship. And so it's important for us as we consider what the role of the Spirit is so that we can lose our reserve, so that we can lose our coyness to the Spirit. It's important for us to consider what is, what is to be our experience of the Spirit and what is it that uh, Paul argues about here in chapter 12 because what he's working back against is why the Spirit is never to be a divisive issue. And there's four main arguments that he presents. We find the first one in verses 1 through 3. And in these verses in 1 through 3, we see that the Spirit actually constitutes our community together in Jesus Christ. Follow with me in verse 3. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is, a, is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Paul has just referred to their pagan background and experience. But these people were converted under the apostles' preaching. And they had come to a genuine and authentic faith in Jesus. And they were confessing the words, Jesus is Lord. And Paul says that that confession is only made by the Spirit of God. That that confession is taught us in our hearts and our hearts are open to the things of the gospel by the miracle, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God regenerating us and reworking us and renewing us and teaching us to believe in Him. And so Paul is explaining that the Spirit creates the community, it collects the church together, and it frees us to confess faith in Jesus and so the Spirit is a binding force that brings us together into one, not something that divides us and presses us apart from one another. And this simple confession, Jesus is Lord, is the first definition of the spiritual community. And if you want to talk about what does the sphere of the Spirit look like, Paul does not begin with charismatic manifestations. Paul begins by saying, no, the sphere of the Spirit is the confession that Jesus is Lord. That's what it looks like to be a spiritual community. Now, the Corinthians were dividing themselves up around gifts of knowledge and wisdom and insight that were related to certain philosophical trends in their day. 
And they had certain aberrant doctrines and they had more divisive social practices among them as we've seen. And Paul presses back against all of those divisions that they were creating and says, no, the spirituality of this community exists in a common confession of faith. And that common confession of faith is the simple words, Jesus is Lord. Now, it's easy for us to miss just how controversial those words were in the first century. But to be a citizen of the Roman Empire, it was required that you profess one thing. And that was that Caesar Curios, that is Caesar is Lord. That is what must be said in order to be part of the Roman citizenship. And so against this backdrop, Christians developed their own profession of faith saying that, no, Caesar is not the world's true Lord, Jesus is. And that when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, conquering over sin and death, he destroyed all principalities and all dominions and all authorities. And now he sits at the right hand of God from where he rules over all the nations of the earth. And one day he will soon return. And Paul says this confession of faith, having spiritual eyes to see these things, that Jesus is the world's true Lord and ruler, the one who cancels out our sins, that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And to confess faith in Christ, whether we are 32 or whether we are 3 or whether we are 70 years old, is a miracle of God. That the human heart is that hard. Remember back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so it is the Spirit of God who creates and collects the community and teaches us to confess faith in Jesus. This is the first piece of what it means for us to be a church. Now, the second argument that Paul presents here is found in verses 4 through 11 as we work through the passage. But we see that this spirit who teaches us to confess faith in Jesus as Lord, we see that this same spirit lavishes gifts on our community for the good of the community. Follow with me in verse 7. Paul says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. This was Paul's understanding of why the Spirit distributed gifts to members of the congregation individually. That the manifestation of the Spirit was for the service of the body, not the division of the body. And yet this is how the gifts were being used. They were being used to divide. And God says no. That the gifts are given to unite. They are given to serve. They are given to build up the body, not tear it apart. And so just as the Spirit creates faith in us, it's important to notice that the Spirit also sovereignly distributes gifts to us. Follow with me in verse 11. Here Paul says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. He simply enumerates some different gifts, some of the gifts, in verses 8 through 10. And he says, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. 
And so we don't determine what gifts we get. We don't decide what we're going to receive. But rather, our great king in all of his wisdom imparts gifts to us in order to serve the body around us. That is what God does in a spiritual community that confesses faith in Jesus. He lavishly distributes gifts, all kinds of different gifts, for all kinds of different things. But this is what he does among us. Now, there are a couple of direct implications for us as we absorb what it means that these are God's gifts given to us for the sake of the community. Consider these applications with me. And the first is that we cannot neglect the gifts. The gift is not yours, and so you cannot decide whether you will exercise it or not. Why does God give us the gift? For the common good. And friends, it can be very tempting for many different reasons not to exercise the particular gifts that God entrusts to us. And just on the pastoral, very practical level, I've seen a spectrum of reasons for why people are not inclined to exercise their gift. And that spectrum typically spans something like this, from just a raw form of selfishness to some form of being hurt by the church and everything in between. That people have many different reasons. Sometimes they just simply don't want to give themselves to others. And then sometimes they've been so disappointed and so crushed and so hurt by the church that they're not willing to be open again to use their gifts for the sake of the same church that hurt them. And for every reason that falls between those two poles, Paul says no. That we cannot neglect the gifts because the gifts exist for the common good of the body and we are to exercise those gifts. Now a second implication for us here is that we cannot covet the gifts of others. We saw in verse 11 that it is up to the wisdom of the Spirit as to how the gifts are distributed. And that this is God's mind and God's wisdom and God's exercise of what He's doing. And we have no say in it. That who is who are we to instruct the mind of the Lord, Paul says in, in the book of Romans. And so we have no influence on how He does these things. But he distributes the gifts and he does so liberally. But so frequently we can be dissatisfied with what our portion and our lot is and what good we are to serve inside the community. And so we can begin to compare ourselves and look at someone else and say, well, if only I had that gift, I would be of more use to the Lord. If I could do that, then perhaps I would be better and I would have more meaning in my life. But rather what God calls us to do is when we see the gifting of others, is simply to give thanks for it. And we are to encourage that person to fan that gift into flame, to, to use that gift, to exploit it for all of the common good of the church. And we are then to work on employing what our particular gift is. And so some will say, well, Chuck, I have no clue. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what my spiritual gifting is. And friends, there are things like tests and different things you can take, and there is some help in those things. But one of the best things that you can do, just practically, if you are a bit confused about where God has gifted you by his manifold spirit, then simply sit down with a fellow brother or sister who has some wisdom and talk about the issue. 
And I believe that almost 100% of the times it's been very easy to identify, you know, I think God has gifted you in this way. And here are the practical ways that can work out. And friends, that's the kind of community that God is creating through the Spirit, is identifying our spiritual gifts and then using those. We're not absolved of all kinds of other responsibilities out there that God calls us to. But in very particular ways, He will use us because of the gifting, when, when we apply the gifting that He has worked in us. And so we're not to covet the gifts of others. We're simply to employ the ones that we have. And finally, we're not to abuse the gifts. That is, we're not to use the spiritual gifts that God entrusts to us for our own ends. And this is one of the things that was happening here in Corinth, is that these spiritual leaders who were wise and smart and sophisticated and perhaps wealthy, as we've seen that the book of Corinthians indicates, they were using the gifts to create divisions and to isolate themselves and run away with the church. They had created a church of Corinth, not the church in Corinth. And they were abusing the gifts for their own privilege, for their own personal power. And friends, there's always a temptation when God entrusts gifts to us to use those gifts to serve ourselves. We still may be in the service of others. We may be up front doing certain things, but the gift has turned and it's become about ourselves. Whether it's a need of affirmation in us or whether it's a need for friendship or acceptance by others, whatever it may be, we turn to gift to serve ourselves rather than serving the common good. And we must resist that temptation to abuse God's gifts that he gives to us. And we must always seek to orient the gifts that he entrusts for the common good of the people. We're not to neglect them. We're not to covet the gifts of others. We're not to abuse the gifts that God gives. That's what the spiritual community looks like. One who resists all those temptations and knows that God gives to us freely, that we apply them for the good of the community. The third argument that Paul presents here is found in verses 12 through 13. And here we see that the Spirit sacramentally unites us as one community. We saw in verses 1 through 4 that the Spirit unites us as we confess a common faith that Jesus is Lord. But here Paul turns in his argument and he says that, no, we are actually one body also, not just simply because we confess one Lord, but sacramentally we participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper where we experience the power of the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 13. For in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And there are two references here to the two sacraments of the New Testament church. The baptism in which we share in the one spirit where the spirit is promised to all those who believe in Jesus, is exhibited to us in the, in the application of the water, and then is conferred in God's wisdom. And then we find also a reference here at the tail end of the verse to the Lord's Supper where he speaks of drinking of one spirit. And if you build this into last week's sermon from 1 Corinthians 11 on the Lord's Supper, we spoke of the spiritual mystery where we feed on the body and blood of Jesus by the Spirit as we come to the table in faith. And so Paul speaks of drinking of the Spirit. And friends, as we participate in those sacraments, 
There is a spiritual mystery that takes place among us, a mystical union where we are bound together because we participate in these covenant signs and rituals as we come to Jesus. And once again, Paul is saying, see, because you participated in this, you are one, not two. Though the Spirit's gifts are many and they're distributed liberally, that's not to tear you apart. You participate in these two signs that bind you together as one. And friends, we are fond of tearing ourselves apart based on different socioeconomic class divisions, based on race, or based on charismatic manifestations of the Spirit. And Paul will have none of it. He says, no, because of the Spirit and because of your participation in that Spirit, You are one body, and there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. You stand before God in Jesus Christ, and you share in this one Spirit of God. And so stop dividing yourselves up. The fourth and final argument that Paul presents here is found in verses 14 through 31 as he continues to press back against this divisiveness. And here we see that the Spirit operates our body with interdependent systems. Paul goes to some length here, and we will not chase all of the verses, where he uses the metaphor of a body in order to make the point extremely clear that the body is an interdependent system, and it requires all of its parts in order to be a body and to be a healthy, functioning human being. And he applies that to the church. Now, the interesting piece of this is that in social and political discourse in the first century, especially when it came to the life of a Greco-Roman city, it was common to use the body as a metaphor. But the metaphor was used in order to teach those who were of the lower classes to stay put. Paul then takes this metaphor and he takes it in a very provocative direction. He doesn't tell those of the lower classes to stay put and obey their superiors. Rather, he draws an equality around this and says there is no Jew or Greek, that we're one body, and that every member of the body is distinguished and particular and significant and important and equal in Christ. This is his argument. Then in the Spirit, because you're that particular part of the body, you have a particular role. And so play that role. Work it out. Be excellent at it. Fan it into flame. Notice how he chases the argument in verse 14. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then follow into verses 18 and 20. He says, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then finally in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And that as Christians, we cannot conceive of ourselves simply as individuals, as monads out there apart from one another. But rather the Spirit constitutes us as a confessing community. We're bound together through the sacraments. And then we have these liberal lavishing of spiritual gifts on us in order to serve one another. And so Christianity at its heart is a deeply communal religion in which God entrusts the Spirit to us in order to be actively involved in building up the church community around us. 
and that these are all interdependent systems. And that if one part decides not to participate, they're injuring the whole. If one part gets covetous of another part, they're actually injuring the whole. If one part begins to press themselves up in positions of power and to degrade those who have different gifts, there actually is an injury that takes place to the whole. Paul will go on in the closing verses to identify that there are offices and roles that God gives to the church where perhaps some things become prominent and on display. But in no way does he say that these are less distinguished or they are less from God or that they are less spiritual. And friends, it is always the task of the community to uphold one another, to recognize that we're interdependent, that there is an irreducible complexity to the Christian body and that we must live one another and we deeply need one another, actively engaged in order to be a healthy community. And friends, when we step back, despite our hesitations about the Spirit, despite some of the discomforts, despite the divisions that doctrines of the Spirit have created in the church, when we step back from all of that and we look at the work of the Spirit, there is so much for us to affirm, so much for us to appreciate, so much for us to give thanks for. That the Spirit, that He is the one who enters into us and teaches us to confess faith in Jesus. That the Spirit is the one who, in the wisdom of God, liberally lavishes God's gifts upon the church for the service of one another. That the Spirit is the one who sacramentally unites us as we participate in bread and wine and baptismal water and makes us one family. And the Spirit is the one who teaches us to appreciate the diversity that God creates. Because brothers and sisters, diversity is always difficult in whatever form it comes in. And we like to make things simple. But God calls us to live in a diverse system where there are many gifts, but we're all pulling for the one team. That is the team of Jesus as Lord. That He's the world's true ruler. And so we together serve that great end. Let the Spirit, that Spirit, unite us and build us together. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we can mess this up in so many ways, and we have in so many ways. We ask that you forgive us, but by the one Spirit who pulls together one body, one confessing community with many gifts, May we love and serve one another and the world around us using our gifts for your great good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.